Section 21 of The Interpretation of Dreams. This is LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Hall. The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. Translated by A. A. Brill. Section 21. Dreams of the Death of Beloved Persons. Another series of dreams which may be called typical are those whose content is that a beloved relative, a parent, brother, sister, child or the like has died. We must at once distinguish two classes of such dreams, those in which the dreamer remains unmoved and those in which he feels profoundly grieved by the death of the beloved person, even expressing this grief by shedding tears in his sleep. We may ignore the dreams of the first group. They have no claim to be reckoned as typical. If they are analysed, it is found that they signify something that is not contained in them, that they are intended to mask another wish of some kind. This is the case in the dream of the aunt who sees the only son of her sister lying on a bier. Chapter 4 the dream does not mean that she desires the death of her little nephew. As we have learned, it merely conceals the wish to see a certain beloved person again after a long separation. The same person whom she has seen after as long an interval at the funeral of another nephew. This wish, which is the real content of the dream, gives no cause for sorrow, and for that reason no sorrow is felt in the dream. We see here that the feeling contained in the dream does not belong to the manifest, but to the latent dream content, and that the effective content has remained free from the distortion which has befallen the conceptual content. It is otherwise with those dreams in which the death of a beloved relative is imagined, and in which a painful effect is felt. These signify, as their content tells us, the wish that the person in question might die, and since I may here expect that the feelings of all my readers and of all who have had such dreams will lead them to reject my explanation, I must endeavour to rest my proof on the broadest possible basis. We have already cited a dream from which we could see that the wishes represented as fulfilled in dreams are not always current wishes. There may also be bygone, discarded, buried and repressed wishes, which we must nevertheless credit with a sort of continued existence, merely on account of their reappearance in a dream. They are not dead like persons who have died, in the sense that we know death, but are rather like the shades in the Odyssey which awaken to a certain degree of life so soon as they have drunk blood. The dream of the dead child in the box, chapter 4, contained a wish that had been present fifteen years earlier, and which had at that time been frankly admitted as real. Further, and this perhaps is not unimportant from a standpoint of the theory of dreams, a recollection from the dreamer's earliest childhood was at the root of this wish also. When the dreamer was a little child, but exactly when cannot be definitely determined, she heard that her mother, during the pregnancy of which she was the outcome, had fallen into a profound emotional depression, and had passionately wished for the death of the child in her womb. Having herself grown up and become pregnant, she was only following the example of her mother. 
If anyone dreams that his father or mother, his brother or sister, has died, and his dream expresses grief, I should never adduce this as proof that he wishes any of them dead now. The theory of dreams does not go as far as to require this. It is satisfied with concluding that the dreamer has wished them dead at some time or other during his childhood. I fear, however, that this limitation will not go far to appease my critics. Probably they will just as energetically deny the possibility that they ever had such thoughts, as they protest that they do not harbour them now. I must, therefore, reconstruct a portion of the submerged infantile psychology on the basis of the evidence of the present. Let us first of all consider the relation of children to their brothers and sisters. I do not know why we presuppose that it must be a loving one, since examples of enmity among adult brothers and sisters are frequent in everyone's experience, and since we are so often able to verify the fact that this estrangement originated during childhood, or has always existed... Moreover, many adults who today are devoted to their brother and sisters and support them in adversity lived with them in almost continuous enmity during their childhood. The elder child ill-treated the younger, slandered him and robbed him of his toys. The younger was consumed with helpless fury against the elder, envied and feared him, or his earliest impulse toward liberty and his first revolt against injustice were directed against his oppressor. The parents say that the children do not agree and cannot find the reason for it. It is not difficult to see that the character even of a well-behaved child is not the character we should wish to find in an adult. A child is absolutely egoistical. He feels his wants acutely and strives remorselessly to satisfy them, especially against his competitors, other children and first of all against his brothers and sisters. And yet we do not, on that account, call a child wicked. We call him naughty. He is not responsible for his misdeeds, either in our own judgment or in the eyes of the law. And this is as it should be, for we may expect within the very period of life which we reckon as childhood, altruistic impulses and morality will awake in a little egoist, and that, in the words of Maynard, a secondary ego will overlay and inhibit the primary ego. Morality, of course, does not develop simultaneously in all its departments, and furthermore, the duration of the amoral period of childhood differs in different individuals. Where this morality fails to develop, we are prone to speak of degeneration, but here the case is obviously one of arrested development. Where the primary character is already overlaid by the later development, it may be at least partially uncovered again by an attack of hysteria. The correspondence between the so-called hysterical character and that of a naughty child is positively striking. The obsessional neurosis, on the other hand, corresponds to a supermorality, which develops as a strong reinforcement against the primary character that is threatening to revive. Many persons, then, who now love their brothers and sisters and who would feel bereaved by their death, harbour in their unconscious hostile wishes, survivals from an earlier period, wishes which are able to realise themselves in dreams. It is, however, quite especially interesting to observe the behaviour of little children up to their third or fourth year towards their younger brothers or sisters. 
So far, the child has been the only one. Now he is informed that the stork has brought a new baby. The child inspects the new arrival and expresses his opinion with decision. The stork had better take it back again. Hans, whose phobia was the subject of the analysis in the above-mentioned publication, cried out at the age of three and a half while feverish shortly after the birth of a sister. But I don't want to have a little sister. In his neurosis, 18 months later, he frankly confessed the wish that his mother should drop the child into the bath while bathing it, in order that it might die. With all this, Hans was a good-natured, affectionate child, who soon became fond of his sister and took her under his special protection. I seriously declare it as my opinion that a child is able to estimate the disadvantages which he has to expect on account of a newcomer. A connection of mine, who now gets on very well with a sister who is four years her junior, responded to the news of his sister's arrival with the reservation, but I shan't give her my red cap anyhow. If the child should come to realise only at a later stage that its happiness may be prejudiced by a younger brother or sister, its enmity will be aroused at this period. I know of a case where a girl, not three years of age, tried to strangle an infant in its cradle because she suspected that its continued presence boded her no good. Children at this time of life are capable of a jealousy that is perfectly evident and extremely intense. Again, perhaps the little brother or sister really soon disappears and the child once more draws to himself the whole affection of the household. Then a new child is sent by the stork. Is it not natural that the favourite should conceive the wish that the new rival might meet the same fate as the earlier one, in order that he may be as happy as he was before the birth of the first child and during the interval after his death? Of course, this attitude of the child towards the younger brother or sister is, under normal circumstances, a mere function of the difference of age. After a certain interval, the maternal instincts of the older girl will be awakened towards the helpless newborn infant. Such cases of death in the experience of children may soon be forgotten in the family, but psychoanalytical investigation shows that they are very significant for a later neurosis. Feelings of hostility towards brothers and sisters must occur far more frequently in children than is observed by the obtuse elders. Since the above was written, a great many observations relating to the originally hostile attitude of children towards their brothers and sisters and toward one of their parents have been recorded in the literature of psychoanalysis. One writer, Spitteler, gives the following peculiarly sincere and ingenious description of this typical childish attitude as he experienced in his earliest childhood. Moreover, there was now a second Adolf, a little creature whom they declared was my brother. I could not understand what he could be for, or why they should pretend he was a being like myself. I was sufficient unto myself. What did I want with a brother? and he was not only useless, he was also even troublesome. When I plagued my grandmother, he too wanted to plague her. When I was wheeled about in the baby carriage, he sat opposite me and took up half the room so that we could not help kicking one another. In the case of my own children, who followed one another rapidly, I missed the opportunity of making such observations. I am now retrieving it, thanks to my little nephew, whose undisputed domination was disturbed after fifteen months by the arrival of a feminine rival.
I hear, it is true, that the young man behaves very chivalrously towards his little sister, that he kisses her hand and strokes her, but in spite of this, I have convinced myself that even before the completion of his second year, he is using his new command of language to criticise this person, who, to him, after all, seems superfluous. Whenever the conversation turns upon her, he chimes in and cries angrily, Too little! Too little! During the first few months, since the child has outgrown this disparagement, owing to her splendid development, he has found another reason for his insistence that she does not deserve so much attention. He reminds us on every suitable pretext, she hasn't any teeth. We all of us recollect the case of the eldest daughter of another sister of mine. The child, who was then six years of age, spent a full half hour in going from one aunt to another with a question, Lucy can't understand that, can she? Lucy was her rival, two and a half years younger. The three-and-a-half-year-old Hans embodied his devastating criticism of his little sister in these identical words, Look, sit. He assumed that she was unable to speak on account of her lack of teeth. I have never failed to come across this dream of the death of brothers or sisters, denoting an intense hostility, e.g. I have met it in all my female patients. I have met with only one exception, which could easily be interpreted into a confirmation of the rule. Once, in the course of a sitting, when I was explaining the state of affairs to a female patient, since it seemed to have some bearing on the symptoms under consideration that day, she answered, to my astonishment, that she had never had such dreams. But another dream occurred to her, which presumably had nothing to do with the case, a dream which she had first dreamed at the age of four, when she was the youngest child, and had since then dreamed repeatedly. A number of children, all her brothers and sisters with her boy and girl cousins, were romping about in a meadow. Suddenly they all grew wings, flew up and were gone. She had no idea of the significance of this dream, but we can hardly fail to recognise it as a dream of the death of all the brothers and sisters in its original form, and but little influenced by the censorship. I will venture to add the following analysis of it. On the death of one out of this large number of children, in this case the children of two brothers were brought up together as brothers and sisters, would not our dreamer, at that time not yet four years of age, have asked some wise grown-up person, what becomes of children when they are dead? The answer would probably have been, they grow wings and become angels. After this explanation, all the brothers and sisters and cousins in the dreams now have wings, like angels, and, this is the most important point, they fly away. Our little angel-maker is left alone. Just think, the only one out of such a crowd. That the children romp about a meadow, from which they fly away, points almost certainly to butterflies. It is as though the child had been influenced by the same association of ideas which led the ancients to imagine Psyche, the soul, with the wings of a butterfly. Perhaps some readers will now object that the inimical impulses of children towards their brothers and sisters may perhaps be admitted. But how does the childish character arrive at such heights of wickedness as to desire the death of a rival or a stronger playmate, 
as though all misdeeds could be atoned for only by death. Those who speak in this fashion forget that the child's idea of being dead has little but the word in common with our own. The child knows nothing of the horrors of decay, of shivering in the cold grave, of the terror of the infinite nothing, the thought of which the adult, as all the myths of the hereafter testify, finds so intolerable. The fear of death is alien to the child, and so he plays with the horrid word and threatens another child. If you do that again, you will die, just like Francis died. At which the poor mother shudders, unable perhaps to forget that the greater proportion of mortals do not survive beyond the years of childhood. Even at the age of eight, a child returning from a visit to a natural history museum may say to her mother, Mama, I do love you so. If you ever die, I am going to have you stuffed and set you up here in the room, so that I can always see you. So different from our own is the childish conception of being dead. To my astonishment, I was told that a highly intelligent boy of ten, after the sudden death of his father, said, I understand that father is dead, but I can't see why he does not come home to supper. Further material relating to this subject will be found in the section Kinderseal, edited by Frau Dr. von Hug Helmuth in Imago, volume 1 to 5, 1912 to 18. Being dead means, for the child, who has been spared the sight of the suffering that precedes death, much the same as being gone and ceasing to annoy the survivors. The child does not distinguish the means by which this absence is brought about, whether by distance or estrangement or death. If, during the child's prehistoric years, a nurse was being dismissed, and if his mother dies a while later, the two experiences, as we discover by analysis, form links of a chain in his memory. The fact that the child does not very intensely miss those who are absent has been realised, to her sorrow, by many a mother. When she has returned home from an absence of several weeks and has been told upon inquiry, the children have not asked for their mother once. But if she really departs for that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, the children seem at first to have forgotten her, and only subsequently do they begin to remember their dead mother. The observation of a father trained in psychoanalysis was able to detect the very moment when his very intelligent little daughter, age four, realised the difference between being away and being dead. The child was being troublesome at table, and noted that one of the waitresses in the pension was looking at her with an expression of annoyance. Josephine ought to be dead, she thereupon remarked to her father. But why dead? asked the father soothingly. Wouldn't it be enough if she went away? No, replied the child. Then she would come back again. To the uncurbed self-love, narcissism of the child, every inconvenience constitutes the crime of less majest, and as in draconian code the child's feelings prescribe for all such crimes the one invariable punishment. While, therefore, the child has its motives for desiring the absence of another child, it is lacking in all those restraints which would prevent it from clothing this wish in the form of a death wish. And the psychic reaction to dreams of a death wish proves that, in spite of all the differences of content, the wish in the case of the child is, after all, identical with the corresponding wish of an adult. 
if then the death wish of a child in respect of his brothers and sisters is explained by his childish egoism which makes him regard his brothers and sisters as rivals how are we to account for the same wish in respect of his parents who bestow their love on him and satisfy his needs and whose preservation he ought to desire for these very egoistical reasons towards the solution of this difficulty we may be guided by our knowledge that the very great majority of dreams of the death of a parent refer to the parent of the same sex as the dreamer so that a man generally dreams of the death of his father and a woman of the death of her mother i do not claim that this happens constantly but that it happens in a great majority of cases is so evident that it requires explanation by some factor of general significance broadly speaking it is as though a sexual preference made itself felt at an early age as though the boy regarded his father and the girl her mother as a rival in love by whose removal he or she could but profit the situation is frequently disguised by the intervention of a tendency to punishment which in the form of a moral reaction threatens the loss of the beloved parent before rejecting this idea as monstrous let the reader again consider the actual relations between parents and children we must distinguish between the traditional standard of conduct the filial piety expected in this relation and what daily observation shows us to be the fact more than one occasion for enmity lies hidden amongst the relations of parents and children conditions are present in the greatest abundance under which wishes cannot pass the censorship are bound to arise let us first consider the relation between father and son in my opinion the sanctity with which we have endorsed the injunctions of the decalogue dulls our perception of the reality perhaps we hardly dare permit ourselves to perceive that the greater part of humanity neglects to obey the fifth commandment in the lowest as well as the highest strata of human society filial piety towards parents is wont to recede before other interests the obscure legends which have been handed down to us from the primeval ages of human society in mythology and folklore give a deplorable idea of the despotic power of the father and the ruthlessness with which it was exercised Kronos devours his children as the wild boar devours the litter of the sow zeus emasculates his father and takes his place as ruler the more tyrannically the father ruled in the ancient family the more surely must the son as his appointed successor have assumed the position of an enemy and the greater must have been his impatience to attain to supremacy through the death of his father even in our own middle-class families the father commonly fosters the growth of the germ of hatred which is naturally inherent in the paternal relation by refusing to allow the son to be a free agent or by denying him the means of becoming so a physician often has occasion to remark that a son's grief at the loss of his father cannot quench his gratification that he has at last obtained his freedom fathers as a rule cling desperately to as much of the sadly antiquated potestas patris familias as still survives in our modern society and the poet who like ibsen 
puts the immemorial strife between father and son in the foreground of his drama, is sure of his effect. The causes of conflict between mother and daughter arise when the daughter grows up and finds herself watched by her mother when she longs for real sexual freedom, while the mother is reminded by the budding beauty of her daughter that for her the time has come to renounce sexual claims. All these circumstances are obvious to everyone, but they do not help us to explain dreams of the death of their parents in persons for whom filial piety has long since come to be unquestionable. We are, however, prepared by the foregoing discussion to look for the origin of a death wish in the earliest years of childhood. In the case of psychoneurotics, analysis confirms this conjecture beyond all doubt, for analysis tells us that the sexual wishes of the child, insofar as they deserve this designation in their nascent state, awaken at a very early age, and that the earliest affection of the girl-child is lavished on the father, while the earliest infantile desires of the boy are directed upon the mother. For the boy, the father, and for the girl, the mother, becomes an obnoxious rival, and we have already shown, in the case of brothers and sisters, how readily in children this feeling leads to the death wish. As a general rule, sexual selection soon makes its appearance in the parents. It is a natural tendency for the father to spoil his little daughters, and for the mother to take the part of the sons, while both, so long as the glamour of sex does not prejudice their judgment, are strict in training the children. The child is perfectly conscious of this partiality and offers resistance to the parent who opposes it. To find love in an adult is for the child not merely the satisfaction of a special need. It means also that the child's will is indulged in all other respects. Thus the child is obeying its own sexual instinct and at the same time reinforcing the stimulus proceeding from the parents when its choice between the parents corresponds with their own. The signs of these infantile tendencies are for the most part overlooked, and yet some of them may be observed even after the early years of childhood. An eight-year-old girl of my acquaintance, whenever her mother is called away from the table, takes advantage of her absence to proclaim herself her successor. Now I shall be mamma. Carl, do you want some more vegetables? Have some more, do, etc. A particularly clever and lively little girl, not yet four years of age, in whom this trait of child psychology is unusually transparent, says frankly, Now mummy can go away, then daddy must marry me and I will be his wife. Nor does this wish by any means exclude the possibility that the child may most tenderly love its mother. If the little boy is allowed to sleep at his mother's side whenever his father goes on a journey, and if, after his father's return, he has to go back to the nursery, to a person whom he likes far less, the wish may readily arise that his father might always be absent, so that he might keep his place beside his dear, beautiful mamma. And the father's death is obviously a means for the attainment of this wish. For the child's experience has taught him that dead folks like Grandpapa, for example, are always absent, they never come back. 
while such observations of young children readily accommodate themselves to the interpretation suggested. They do not, it is true, carry the complete conviction which is forced upon a physician by the psychoanalysis of adult neurotics. The dreams of neurotic patients are communicated with preliminaries of such a nature that their interpretation as wish-dreams becomes inevitable. One day I find a lady depressed and weeping. She says, I do not want to see my relatives any more. They must shudder at me. Thereupon, almost without any transition, she tells me that she has remembered a dream, whose significance, of course, she does not understand. She dreamed it was when she was four years old, and it was this. A fox or a lynx is walking about the roof, then something falls down, or she falls down, and after that her mother is carried out of the house, dead, whereat the dreamer weeps bitterly. I have no sooner informed her that this dream must signify a childish wish to see her mother dead, and that it is because of this dream that she thinks that her relatives must shudder at her, than she furnishes material in explanation of the dream. Link's eye is an opprobious epithet which a street boy once bestowed on her when she was a very small child, and when she was three years old a brick or tile fell on her mother's head, so that she bled profusely. End of section 21 Recording by Tony Hall, Cumbria